Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Best ass podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that, so thank you. All right, now for the show. Rain falls on the Principality of Monaco. The 1984 Monaco Grand Prix is delayed. The weather is atypical for the June race weekend. A race known for its garish excess takes on a bleak mood as the Formula One cars wait on the grid. This race is unique. Instead of taking place on a well-manicured motorplex, today's circuit is a serpentine dash through city streets. Finally, the stewards give the okay to fire up the race cars. After the drivers complete a warm-up lap to assess the flooded venue, it's time to start. Near the back of the grid is one Ayrton Senna. Raindrops land on his visor as he focuses on the starting signal. The light turns from red to green. Senna feathers the throttle and clutch as the tires search for grip. Ayrton finds an opening and goes for it. Welcome back to Past Gas. Joe, can I get a can I get a catchphrase, Joe? You may now. Fired up. <laughs> yes. Nice. All right. Yeah. Welcome back, everyone, to Past Gas, the Donut Automotive History Show. I don't think we intro- I don't think we introduced our yeah we didn't introduce ourselves last time. My name is Nolan Sykes. With me today, as always, oh, it feels so good to say. Uh, one James Pumphrey. Uh, more power, baby. And lightning, one Joe. Lightning. <laughs> and <laughs> lightning, one... lightning, lightning, lightning. More power, baby. <laughs> Joe Weber. Fired up. Fired up. <laughs> hey, Hello. Can I talk about that real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I never wrote that. That was just something Kanan made me say one time, and I real I feel for Job now because the first video he was in on Donut. I made him say hecky hecky na na and that <laughs> he got so much like so many DMs of guys saying that to him and now I completely empathize with him because I'm getting all that in my DMs right well, now. Well, did you make fire... him say hecky hecky na na? It was a bumper to bumper and it was right when you had your heart attack. Uh. And so he stepped in to uh, uh. host something and i i wrote that in the script for you to say <laughs> i would nail he hecky, hecky, no, no. <laughs> yeah, hecky, that, hecky, no, that's kind of no. something <laughs> that like you realize when you read for someone else you're like oh i was not meant to say this yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. definitely went through that on the pantera shoot um 
when I said that. I wrote that, that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, that was definitely meant for James. Um, <laughs> what, what was it? I don't, everything. It was a script written for you. So there's just like tons of like uh, colloquialisms and all that where I was like, yep, I am not Pumphrey. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it, it's pretty funny though. But Fired Up definitely resonates. I think it's great. I think you should keep saying it. It's your catchphrase now, yeah. and you can never escape that. Just like I will never escape uh, milk, and mm -hmm. <laughs> James will never escape the cavalcade of catchphrases that he has coined. I went through a period. <laughs> so, I went through a period a few months ago when ever like so I would say like my catchphrase like like more power baby or hearse purse or something. Like I just felt like a clown, but then. <laughs> Like, I just thought about it and, and I realized how grateful I should be to have catchphrases um, and to have <laughs> things that I made up printed on t-shirts that people buy. So. Absolutely. And, and these are, especially in terms of like Mopao Baby and Hearst Powers and all that, like you, this is stuff now that we see, like I'll see in totally unrelated YouTube comments or Reddit threads and all that stuff. It's like, damn, dude. Like, I remember when James did that in our office, and now it's like this whole thing. It's it's really, really crazy, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, man. Anyway, it's pretty wanna, sweet. It's pretty sweet. You guys want to? Pretty sweet. You guys want to kiss? What these brains can do. We're we're global. Global. Yes. Speaking of global, uh, today we're uh, talking about uh, Arrington Senna's beginnings of Formula One. Uh, while much has been said about Senna's time at McLaren, of course, iconic, uh, less attention has been given to Senna's early years in Formula One, driving for smaller teams for smaller victories. To understand how Ayrton became an icon driving for the orange and white, we have to look at how he earned his drive at McLaren in the first place, which is exactly what we're going to do today. To say that Ayrton paid his dues in F1 is an understatement. While Senna's inherent skill and talent is the stuff of legend, his time behind the wheel of some truly awful cars gave him the skills that were only amplified when he was finally given the chance to drive a proper race car. Look, I think anyone could get behind the wheel of a really great car and do well, but it takes a real driver to put a shitbox on the podium. Well so, said. without further ado, I, by the way, I, I wrote that, uh, I, that is a popular sentiment, I don't think anyone could just hop in the Mercedes. I don't even uh, think F1 I could car. drive the Mercedes. No, probably not. But <laughs> um, re reading interviews with like uh, current F1 drivers, uh, when when uh, drivers switch teams and and can and talk about the other cars, like they do mention how some cars are a lot easier to drive than other cars, mm -hmm. uh, and that comes with being a well-engineered car. Um, supposedly, Max Verstappen's. Uh, Red Bull is actually pretty difficult to drive because it requires you drive it a certain way because Red Bull tailored that chassis to Max's driving style because, you know, Daniel Ricciardo had left and there's kind of a rotating lineup at the Red Bull team. But that car drives on a knife's edge, uh, whereas the Mercedes, I guess, is really easy to drive comparatively to other F1 cars. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. Let's do it. Toot toot, as they say. <laughs> this podcast ship is pulling away from the port, and we're going into the ocean of history. Well This said. train's going straight into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> I said shit. All right. <laughs> French automaker Renault Renew. occupies an Renault? Renault. occupies an interesting place on today's Formula One grid. Despite being one of the world's largest auto manufacturers, Renault's lack of Formula One success in recent years tells a different story. Instead of fighting for glory at the front with fellow marks, fellow brands, sorry James, Mercedes-Benz and Ferrari, Renault finished the 2019 season in fifth place behind McLaren, a team powered by Renault's own engines, and two places behind Red Bull, who cut ties with Renault in 2018 and chose to run a Honda power unit instead. Those results don't look great for the brand, but they do start to make sense when you learn who built the foundations of the team. Wait, are you talking about Toro Rosso or Red Bull? Because I thought Toro Rosso was Honda, Red Bull was Aston Martin. Yeah, but they run a Honda power unit. 
2018, Toro Rosso had the Honda power unit because they were testing out for Red Bull. And then in 2019, yeah. Red Bull switched over to Honda. Okay. I'm I'm rewatching Drive to Survive right now, season one. And that's I'm oh, getting season a one. Mixed yeah. Up. So that yeah. Yeah. And that took that was the 2018 season, so it's even further removed. Yeah. Um okay. anyway. Many current Formula One teams are rebranded incarnations of less successful teams bought by a nice price and then built upon. And it makes sense, okay? Existing teams have ready-built infrastructures like team headquarters, personnel, and a car, which is very important. It's much cheaper to buy a team than to build one from scratch. And sometimes it works out. For example, Red Bull bought the Jaguar racing team from Ford back in 2004. After extensive internal reorganization, the team earned a streak of four championships between 2010 and 2013. It took them, you know, six years to get there, but they did it. And Red Bull has remained a top contender ever since. Renault had a similar trajectory when they entered the sport for the third time in 2016. Working backwards here, okay, stick with me, Renault had bought back a controlling stake in the Lotus F1 team, who they sold their 25% stake in 2011 after eight years in the sport, starting in 2002. So Renault first started in 2002. Uh, but before Renault F1 was Renault F1, the team was called Benetton, a decent midfield team with one championship under their belt in their 16-season run. But before Benetton was Benetton, the team was known as Tolman. My team... eyes are like going, <laughs> just drifting. <laughs> I probably should have gone in chronological order, but I thought this was being clever. <laughs> and now it yeah. just sounds really confusing. Smart. Okay, so Renault, Renault today was Lotus, which was Renault, which was Benetton. But before it was Benetton, it was Tolman, a team that laid a foundation so poor, it makes sense to me at least that Renault is still having trouble today. Got it. There we go. But we don't want to make it sound like it's all the Tolman team's fault. Instead of buying a team when they were founded in 1977, Tolman started from the ground up. I want to give them some credit here. The team was established by Ted Tolman in Whitney, Oxfordshire. Ted Tolman? Ted Tolman, nice to meet you. My name is Ted, my, my name's Ted Tolman. I Ted sound Tolman. like a Kiwi. Um, in a strange parallel <laughs> to Senna's own open wheel career, the team's story began with Formula Ford racing and then moved into Formula 2, running a chassis built by manufacturer March Race Cars. Tolman designed their own car for Formula 2 in, in 1980, which was, it was a great platform which helped drivers Brian Henton and Derek Warwick finish first and second in the 1980 championship, respectively. So, I mean, that's pretty great. You're only three years in and you build a championship winning car. That's awesome. Yeah. Good. The immediate success gave the Tolman team a huge boost in confidence. And instead of sticking around in F2, they said, screw it. Let's take our talents to the big leagues after just five years in the sport. So it's confidence. I'm not sure is completely earned, though. If we're still doing baseball analogies, this is like the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, being an expansion team starting in the late 90s and then winning their first World Series in, I think, 2000 or 2001 which is amazing because the brewers has still haven't done that those brewers man <laughs> brewers i'm pulling for you i'm i'm pulling for the brewers on joe's behalf here i want to see joe happy. thank you anyway <laughs> okay so before we move on let's talk some formula one basics for any non-formula one fans in the uh in the audience because i know it's it's a it's an intimidating sport it takes a little bit of homework to get into but i'll help you out here a race weekend has three parts. You have practice, qualifying, and then race day. Most other racing series also follow this format. During practice, you practice. The drivers and teams work out any issues and tailor the car the best they can for that track. Qualifying sees every driver go around the track as fast as they can, racing against the clock, not each other. The order of the fastest times determines the starting order for the race, with the fastest driver sitting on pole or pole position. Formula One qualifying formats vary through the years, but those principles have remained the same. Nowadays, every team can usually qualify for the race no matter how slow they are because most tracks will have excess grid positions. But around this time in the story, there was actually a glut of Formula One teams, 
which means that if a team was especially slow, they wouldn't make the show. Wait, unfortunately for the jazzed up Tolman team, they didn't find success in the 1981 season, immediate or otherwise. Their first F1 car was an obese chassis emblazoned with their title sponsor, Candy, an Italian appliance <laughs> maker. It's this like blue and white car, and then in just in big red letters, it just says Candy <laughs> on the side. I love it. That's it's awesome. pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Tolman's turbocharged heart engine was both underpowered and unreliable. Both Tolman drivers were only able to qualify once in the 1981 season. The next year, reliability was improved to the point where qualifying wasn't an issue, but the team only finished two races. Near the end of the 1982 season, Tolman began developing their next car. I mean, that's just like... That sucks. You have to wonder, like for some smaller teams, just being at the track that weekend and getting to qualify with other legendary race teams on track, like that's enough for some teams. But of course, you always want to make it into the show. Well, I just want to clarify yeah. too right here that uh, Senna is not on this team yet. Not yet. Yeah. I'm um, just, you know, some context for Little just context. how yeah. bad this, how, I don't want to say bad because I want to give them credit for trying. You're a nice but, guy. Yeah. That's because I'm incapable of insulting anybody. Yeah. But they were a shit <laughs> team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. But at this point, Senna is not, he's not one of these two drivers who's not qualifying. No, it's uh, Derek Warwick and Brian Henton. Yeah. Senna's out there. He's, I mean, he's in F3 right F3 now. F3 right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you remember from a McLaren series, McLaren changed the game when they introduced the MP4-1 in 1981. The car was revolutionary in that it utilized a carbon fiber monocoque chassis, which instead of heavy steel tubing, used the highly advanced carbon material. The MP4-1 was super light and super strong, something other teams wanted to emulate. Teams like two-year F1 veterans, Tolman Racing. <laughs> Tolman unveiled their MP41-inspired ride, the TG183, at the end of the 1982 season. Tolman took big swings, including a tandem rear wing design and an unconventional cooling system layout that placed twin radiators in the front wing. Yeah, it's wild. Where the McLaren was progressive, the TG183 was regressive, to say the least. When the extra downforce in the rear paired with the decreased grip at the front, thanks to that weird front wing, steering inputs would get extremely unresponsive at high speeds. Imagine that the car is a lever and the rear tires are the fulcrum. The downforce pushed down on the rear and lifted the front. The dual radiator design was abandoned for more traditional front wing, and this allowed Derek Warwick and Bruno Giam Giacomelli and Bruno, Bruno Giacomelli. And Bruno Giacomelli to drive for five-point scoring finishes, earning Tolman a ninth-place finish that year out of ten. Hey, it's not bad. That's not too bad. Not too bad. I mean, it's not last place. If you ain't last. Not last place, dude. I want to go fast. Warwick's performance in the crummy Tolman earned him a spot on the Renault factory team. Now in the midst of their first F1 effort, long before they bought Benetton, who had bought Tolman. Tolman needed a new driver, which brings us to the subject of this series. The young Ayrton Senna, just 22 years old at this point. Can I sidebar real quick? Sure, There's bud. a lot of really cool um, Benetton F1 jackets on Etsy. Yeah, and the... There's the Benetton um, like steering wheels that everybody with a Harlequin Golf gets. They're like all the different yeah. colors. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe we should talk about Benetton at some point because uh, just looking at their their championship history, it's just a weird trajectory of like not doing well and then just having a great championship season and then never being able to eclipse that again. Um, Kind of weird. I'm sure it's a very. I I didn't look in too much into Benetton for this episode, but I'm sure it's an interesting tale. When I was a kid, I didn't. It took me so long to figure out that they actually make clothes. I thought they were just an F1 team. Oh, is that what they are? They were a brand. Yeah, they make United, United Colors, Colors of, of Benetton. Benetton. I didn't even see. Shows what I know. <laughs> tap out. <laughs> no yeah, one I know knows. Tap, tap out. out. Hurley. <laughs> Her, yeah, I love, dude. I freaking loved hurley dude i only had like two shirts my entire adolescence but i thought hurley was so sick <laughs> i put their sticker on my on my longboard <laughs> dude if you love hurley you should check out ross <clears throat> oh that's a good point 
Yeah. I can finally catch up on all the Fox and No Fear and uh, uh, <laughs> Ocean Pacific um, clothing that I missed out I on. I used to have a No Fear shirt when I was like eight years old and chubby. And it said, uh, pain is just weakness leaving the body. It's like, hell yeah. What is that? No, it's not. No Fear is a... <laughs> hell yeah. I totally agree with that, I, I get that. No Fear is an interesting <laughs> brand, too, because it was, like, started by, I think, some French guy, um, and that, like, started the whole Jersey War of, like, 90s motocross. Super interesting story. Interesting. Red Bull has a great video on yeah, it. Yeah, um, we should uh, do a podcast on it. As we mentioned in our previous episode, the British Formula 3 champion had tested for McLaren, Williams, and Brabham, and was also being scouted by Lotus. It seemed like every legendary British team could use Senna on their roster, but unfortunately, Every deal fell through, which left only a not-so-legendary British team, Tolman. Ayrton's first test with Tolman took place at one of Britain's greatest tracks, Silverstone, built on top of a former World War II airfield. It was rainy that day, typical of Britain, but Ayrton was still able to pilot the 600-horsepower TG-183 with relative ease, putting down a faster lap than previous lead driver Derek Warwick. He was a second faster when the circuit dried out, which only showed how fast Senna was, but Ayrton didn't let his performance cloud his judgment of the Tolman. After the test, he said that this car was definitely not about to beat a Ferrari, Renault, or Brabham. Tolman offered... Hey, uh, Ayrton, we really appreciate your honesty, but uh, a little harsh, dude. (laughs) Yeah. Tolman offered Ayrton the seat, which he would graciously accept. Tolman had now been in the sport for four years, and their drivers had yet to finish as high as fourth place. Ayrton was about to change that. Ooh. Oh, snap. Yep. Okay, okay. Tolman's first race with Senna on the roster was the 1984 Brazilian Grand Prix, not held at Interlagos, the hollowed ground on which Ayrton had learned to drive, but a different circuit in Rio de Janeiro, the... Jacarepagua. The Jacarepagua. The Jacare Pagua circuit. The track was demolished to make room for the 2016 Brazilian Olympics. Yeah, just a weird side note. Yeah. Like Ayrton, his teammate Johnny Chicado was new to Tolman and was a racing prodigy in his own right, with one major difference. Johnny was a motorcycle guy. Hey, I'm Johnny Chicado. I'm a motorcycle guy. <laughs> Hailing from Venezuela, <laughs> Johnny Chicado was the world's youngest MotoGP world champ, winning the 350cc championship when he was just 19 years old. Since then, he had taken up Formula 2 racing and finished second in the 1982 season. Two wheels or four, Chicago was a natural. Oh, yeah. If, Love this Chicago guy. If you guy. think about it, if you think about it, a car is just two motorcycles next to each other. <laughs> Didn't you have a bit like that, James? No, it was, uh, what's his name? Tim Robinson. Tim Robinson. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that guy's so funny. He's the best. Ayrton qualified for the 16th place starting position on the grid. Not a great start, but considering how bad the car was, it was better than last. The great yeah. thing about Ayrton <laughs> is that while he was a very competitive person, he was also able to see the value in being in a bad position and learning from it. I'm inclined that Ayrton knew his time would come. And that his time in a bad car would only make his time in a good car that much better. And I say this because after eight laps, his turbo had a critical malfunction, taking Ayrton out of his first F1 race. In his home country of all places, too. What a bummer bummer day. Fortunately, Senna's luck turned around in his next race, this time in South Africa. This time it wasn't Senna (laughs) who was having mechanical issues, but his competition, because the Tolman was pretty slow, Ayrton finished three laps down from the leader, but in sixth place, earning him his first F1 points. Nice. Hell yeah. Three laps down in sixth place is like, that's such a huge disparity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fast forward a few races to June 3rd, 1984, 11 years before Post Malone was born on July 4th, 1995. Today is Ayrton Senna's sixth race in Formula One. The venue... Circuit de Monaco, Monte Carlo. This was no track, but a race through tight city streets. To this day, Monaco remains one of the most demanding races on the calendar. The margins for error are so slim that nearly any mistake at full clip will mean the end of your day. The first race to be held in the Principality was was in 1929, and the track's layout has remained very similar ever since, with alterations added for 
improve driver safety and better racetrack duties. But things were different on this particular Sunday. It was raining. Quite a lot. What started as a gentle sprinkle in the morning had been cranked up by the rain gods to an all-out <laughs> aquatic assault by race time. Damn, dude, this is rain. Yeah, <laughs> forcing the organizers to postpone the start of the race. Formula Run cars can drive in the wet thanks to special rain tires, unlike other series like NASCAR. But the problem at Monaco was the course's signature long-sweeping right-hander, Turn 9. The cool thing about this turn is that it's in a tunnel, and tunnels don't get wet when it rains. Drivers were concerned that the sudden transition between the soaked asphalt outside of the tunnel and the completely dry road within would make it too hard to drive the car on their rain tires. The stewards listened to the driver's concerns, but instead of waiting for the streets to dry up, they arranged to have the inside of the tunnel sprayed down with fire hoses <laughs> so that the rain tires could hook up. Once the organizers were satisfied, it was time for the warm-up lap. It's so crazy. There's like um, you can actually find this race on YouTube. It's on, uh, and you just see like dudes just spraying down the the tunnels. Mm -hmm. I think we should do a series on Monaco. Yeah, I I would want to do that too. I would have, just have to think about like how to do it without just talking about races, races over and over again. You know. Yeah, I but think if, the just the whole like I just within the last couple years realized that it was like its own country even mm -hmm. though it's like less than a square mile or some shit it's a tax haven yeah you it's know? got all kinds yeah. of crazy rules like you can't even apply for citizenship if you don't have 500 grand in the bank and then like own a bunch oh of God. like property and the citizens aren't allowed in the casinos oh weird yeah that's crazy. super weird um yeah i've actually like i think monaco is a pretty boring race nowadays because the cars the f1 cars are so big uh, that it makes it really impossible to get any passing done. But during this era, the cars were a little smaller. Um, and it's just, it's really cool just to watch these vintage races. We'll get back to more past gas. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Ayrton was sitting seven rows back from the front, having qualified in the 13th position. As the drivers slowly made their way around the course, Senna paid careful attention to where large puddles still stood on the track. Drivers at the front, like McLaren driver Alan Prost, practiced their race launches, feeling out how much power and clutch to give the rear tires as to not completely blow them off when it came, when it came time to start. The field made their way through the course and took their positions at the starting grid. Tense anticipation gripped the crowd. The sound of 20 roaring engines filled the air as the starting light turned from red to green. Water was flung from the rear tires of every car, making Monaco's main straight resemble the fountains of Bellagio, if only for an ah. instant. <laughs> oh, Pretty yeah. sick watching this stuff. Alan Prost led the field into turn one, where Renault drivers Patrick Tambay and Derek Warwick immediately crashed into the wall. Ferrari driver and 1982 Monaco winner Rene Arnault was also involved in the crash, but managed to drive away. None of the drivers were hurt, but the Renault team was out of the race in less than a quarter lap, and Damn. they wouldn't be the last cars. Now let's talk about leader Alan Prost for a little bit here, okay? 
the McLaren driver had finished inside the top five of the drivers' championship since 1980 and finished second behind teammate Nicky Lauda in 1983. Behind the wheel of the McLaren MP4 II, Prost was a force to be reckoned with. In contrast to Senna's eventual reputation for artful and emotional driving, Prost was seen as more of a pragmatist, a calculating, capable, and connected driver who had a knack for playing the political side of racing. Prost was not the kind of guy to push his luck if he didn't have to. Last episode, we talked about how Ayrton would uh, try to increase his margin of victory by as as big as he could, but Prost was a little different. A little bit greedy. A little bit yeah. greedy, if you ask me. If Prost only needed to get fifth in a race, he would go for fifth instead of fighting for second or third and risking a crash. His McLaren was powered by a Porsche V6 power unit, pushing 650 horsepower in race mode, but capable of being turned up over to over 800 for qualifying. Dang, that's a lot of horse. That is a lot of horse. Since Prost was at the head of the pack, he would be able to use all 650 available horsepower. His vision would not be affected by the flurry of water, unlike all the drivers behind him. Trackside cranes were able to retrieve the crashed Renaults very quickly, and the race was back on. But while the TV cameras were focused on the battle for the lead between Prost, William drivers, Williams driver Nigel Mansell, and Nicky Lauda, young Ayrton Senna was cutting his way through the pack as drivers all around him floundered, many of them crashing. Senna possessed a gift, an immense talent for wet driving. I'm getting pretty wet listening to this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, uh, Joe, uh, NSFW, dude. NSFW, bro. Even though the cars were outfitted with tires for the occasion, racing in the rain is so demanding that it could be considered its own skill set. Drastically decreased grip means you can't get the power down. It means your steering inputs are delayed, and the car can be upset much more easily. Rain has been called, quote, the great equalizer, almost to the point of parody, but it's true. You can have the fastest car in the paddock, but if you can't drive it with water on the ground, then you can be beat by someone who can. It sounds like Thanos when he said that. The Great Equalizer. The Great, great equalizer. equalizer. I will make it rain. On lap nine, Nigel Mansell had caught Alan Prost and passed the Frenchman when Prost was held up by a back marker struggling to get around the circuit. By lap 15, Ayrton had fought his way into fourth place with an underpowered and ugly car with the word candy written on the side. It's like candy, candy. <laughs> you guys uh, listen to music? <laughs> Soon, Ayrton was battling Nicky Lauda in the McLaren and prevailed, gaining third place. If Senna could hold on, that would be good enough to stand on the podium. But this is Ayrton Senna we're talking about. Good enough wasn't good enough. He kept charging on. Race leader Mansell charged too hard and spun out when his rear tire went over uh, the painted road markings, which were extremely slick compared to the pavement which sent his Lotus into the wall. Nigel Mansell, he was, he was all right. Don't worry about him. Nicky Lauda had taken back the position from Senna, which meant that the two McLarens were now in the lead with a Tolman giving chase. Was this after Nicky Lauda was in the fight? Yeah. Uh, this is his return to the sport because uh, he cra- he, his uh, first retirement was after uh, he crashed. Um, for Ferrari, but then if you remember from our uh, from McLaren Part Three episode, Ron Dennis was able to bring Nicky Lauda back, which was part of the reason for getting the Mar- Marlboro sponsorship um, and enough to give Ron Dennis control of the uh, the McLaren team, which was not had not been run very well. Anyway, Prost had a 32 second lead on Lauda when Nicky Lauda spun out on lap 23. That would be a comfy lead for any drivers had the conditions been any better, but it wouldn't be that easy. There was something wrong with the McLaren's brakes. Prost wouldn't be able to drive the car as hard. And with every lap, Prost was losing two and a half seconds to Senna. It was clear that today, Senna was better in the rain. On lap 24, Senna set the fastest lap time of the race with no signs of letting up. He was simply in his element. With every interval of the course, Prost's McLaren got larger in Ayrton's visor. 
As Prost passed the start-finish line for lap 29, he started waving his arm out the cockpit. Because so many cars had crashed that day, Prost wanted the stewards to end the race. It was just too dangerous to continue. Ayrton didn't know this, so imagine the thrill he got when on lap 33, he passed Alan Prost's McLaren, which was parked at the finish line. Senna went for a parade lap, incredulous that he had won at Monaco. There's this one small detail. He, uh, he didn't, <laughs> at least officially. The stewards said that the end results were taken from the previous lap in which Prost was leading. Uh, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to me, I'm just going to say it, because if they wanted the race to end on lap 31, they should have waved the checkered and red flag at lap 31. But it goes even deeper and more conspiratorial, if that's your sort of thing. You see, the race clerk that weekend, the guy who basically runs the race, was one Jackie Ix, a legendary racer in his own right, and a Porsche... That was the, that was the dude who like campaigned for the new start at Le Mans. He was the guy who walked... Oh, yeah, that's Walked right. across, yeah. Yeah, he was all about safety. Um, anyway, he was also a Porsche endurance team driver. Now, I'm not saying anything for certain. Certainly not in this case. But there are people out there that think that since Ix was a Porsche man and that Porsche was powering Prost's McLaren, then that must mean that Jackie ruled the win in McLaren's favor and stealing it away from Ayrton Senna. Whatever the truth may be, Ayrton's performance was undeniable and firmly put him on everybody's radar. If the kid could drive like that in a freaking Tolman, imagine what he could do if he was in a good car. Why does Tolman sound like a chocolate company? I to was going to say it. Like, oh, because... Uh, Tollhouse. Uh, Tollhouse and Toblerone. No, Toblerone, yeah. I'm a Toblerone man myself. Really? Triangle chocolate boy? I only eat chocolates in strange geometric shapes <laughs> i don't like toblerones the edges are too sharp i'm scared they're gonna bite my mouth they cut the edge of my mouth <laughs> i think toothpaste is too spicy <laughs> dude i i going off on a toothpaste tangent here but i use um arm and hammer baking soda toothpaste oh, it's the worst <laughs> that shit is like next like it's off-putting how aggressive it is yeah i use Insane. toms tom toms is good I use Arm & Hammer deodorant as well. I use, I'm an Old Spice man. Always have been. Me too. Ah, nice. Cool. Nice, Joe. Nice. My favorite people call me Papa. <laughs> you got it. We all got to get those shirts. I can't wait to be a grandpa. <laughs> I feel like I've been a grandpa for at least 13 years. I've so. decided that when I have kids, I'm going to have them call me Papa. Papa. I'm going to skip having kids and just go to having grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys call your grandparents have any like nicknames for him? Um, uh, so my mom's parents, I called um, Grandma and Grandpa, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, my dad's parents. My dad's parents, we called Granny and Pop. I had a great grandma named Nanny, mm -hmm. and she taught me how to cook. And then I had a Grandpa Puss because he had a. He had uh, like his resting face was looked mean, mm -hmm. and that was they say like that's his puss. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. I have an uncle that we call Fuzz. Oh, nice, Fuzzed? Uncle Fuzz Grandpa, is uncle really Fuzz, good because his name is Lent. Fuzz is great, and Lent. Oh, is Fuzz. nice, yeah. so good. Yeah. Uncle Fuzz, man, pretty good at nicknames. Just, and they yeah. used to call me Jeep, because my initials are J E P. I love it. Um, pretty good. Pretty we good. We had stuff. no cool nicknames for uh, for any of my relatives, unfortunately. <laughs> you just call each other by numbers, right? Yeah, you are family family <laughs> unit seven one three. You guys are like report to yeah. My, <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my mom was Grandpa six so five. Uh, I call her elder woman. I call him elder male. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, Ayrton's second place finish at Monaco would be his highest in the 1984 season, since his talent clearly eclipsed the capabilities of the TG183B. Senna looked elsewhere for a better shot at more podiums. He found what he was looking for at Lotus and broke his contract with Tolman. Lotus was a British team 
who had been in the sport since 1958. Between 1960 and 1970, Lotus could be counted on to do pretty well. In that time frame, they won four championships, three second place finishes, and one third. They were good and won three more championships in the 70s. But the good times took a dive in 1979 with a string of disappointing seasons. Things started looking up in 1984 when the combined efforts of drivers Nigel Mansell and Elio De Angelis earned Lotus a third place overall. Yeah, yeah, third place. Now with the Senna kid on board, things looked even better. Nigel Mansell departed Lotus for Williams as Senna moved in. Senna traded the candy paint of the Tolman for Lotus Black and Gold, sponsored by cigarette brand John Player. Yeah, this is you, one of my favorite liveries. So, so cool. Like you guys, if you're listening out there and you're not driving, Google the uh, John Player special livery. Um, I want a car. I, I tried to convince the dudes to wrap high car in a John Player special livery, <laughs> but I wanted yeah. to say James Pumphrey special. Oh, that's oh, great. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's an interesting livery because um, like some of the more iconic ones that I can think of, like there's definitely like, patterns and shapes mm -hmm. on the car like mclaren for example um with their their chevrons and all that but john player special is just like it just literally just says john player special and then there's two gold lines uh -huh. and that's basically it yeah it's so cool it's so good it looks like a cologne yeah like i didn't know they were it was a cigarette company until recently but... it seems like oh, a cologne yeah. that i want to drink <laughs> <laughs> i think they call that whiskey <laughs> Ayrton's new Italian teammate, Elio De Angelis, had a pretty interesting career trajectory. He was a talented driver who showed a ton of promise at lower levels, but once he made it to F1, it never seemed to work out for Elio. My girlfriend's best friend um, is naming her son Elio, and he's going to be born in the next week or so. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, how like some lower level drivers are great, mm -hmm. but then they just kind of struggle for Elio, it seemed like it was both kind of a skill thing, but also there was a lot of um, car reliability issues for him as well. Yeah, I mean, just unfortunate just, things. Some people don't do well under pressure. That too. Yeah. Um, that's why I got fired by Lorne Michaels. <laughs> Let's start this rumor that you worked for SNL. I didn't work for SNL, but I was on a sitcom that he produced, and he was mean to me. Oh, this I, is real. I thought yeah. you were make, yeah. doing an SNL joke. Yeah. So Elio's time at Lotus. Uh, could be summarized by bottom of the top 10 championship finishes, a completely demoralizing 17th place finish in 1983 that DeAngelis then followed up with a third place finish the next year. Improvements like that don't happen very often, so safe to say that Lotus was feeling pretty good about their 1985 chances. Yeah, they've got like a they you know a driver who's heating up, and now they've got Senna on board as well. It's like, oh man, this is like, this could be like our year, man. This yeah. could be good. Since DeAngelis was the senior driver, he assumed that he was the Lotus team's number one driver. Typically, the number one gets preferential treatment, either with new parts or a more aggressive strategy on race day. On some teams, management explicitly tells the driver who is the number one. An example today would be Mercedes. Lewis Hamilton is arguably potentially the greatest driver of all time. And there's no doubt that he should be number one on the Mercedes team. But on other teams with more evenly matched drivers, it's less clear. So take Haas, for example. Even though driver Kevin Magnussen's car wears the neon highlights that typically designate the number two car, both Haas drivers have similar results. Anyway, back at Lotus, both Senna and DeAngelis believe they should be number one. And Senna had an idea how to accomplish this before the season even began. Elio de Angelis was a competent driver, but he had one major character flaw. He hated testing. I'm a no good at it. I don't like it at testing. <laughs> For teams to really understand how the cars they built work, they need to test them a lot. And even though getting a ton of seat time on a closed course sounds like a blast, it can get pretty boring. Drivers do hundreds of testing laps before the season begins, stress testing with different variables until the engineers are satisfied. At a certain point, it does get monotonous, which is why DeAngelis didn't like it. Senna used this to his advantage. Nice. If, if Elio didn't want to test that day, well, Ayrton would fill in, providing valuable info on the car and gaining favor with the team at the same time. That's really smart. Mm-hmm. 
Got to put in the work, guys. Got to got to do the you got to do the due diligence. To reward Senna for his hard work and testing, Lotus worked very hard to give him a car that he could win with. But did they succeed? Let's find out. April 21st, 1985, Senna's second race with Lotus. The day before, a very sunny one, I might add, Senna took his Lotus to the top of qualifying, earning him pole position. The race was shaping up to be a barn burner, but the flames were doused on race day as a rainstorm loomed over the track, soaking the tarmac. Ayrton didn't mind the tougher conditions, but the new Lotus 97T he was driving had never been driven in the rain. The team didn't know what to expect, but they should have, because they were in an episode about Senna. <laughs> At the end of lap one, Ayrton was already three seconds ahead of Elio, who was in second place. Ayrton's lead kept growing until he found himself behind the guys in last place. Ayrton had to fight off his competition while navigating all the back markers while not being able to see. Ayrton's Just a pa pause real quick. This is a... I don't think we mentioned this is a, a, in Spain. This is the Spanish Grand Prix. Cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ayrton said in a post-race interview, it was a very hard race, even more difficult than last year at Monaco because the conditions were a lot worse than Monaco. With the cars going in front of me, it was impossible to see anything. And you had to go by because there was a big difference in the pace that I was going. So it was one of the biggest moments I had in a race. In an amazing finish, Senna lapped every car on the track except one and finished the race a full minute ahead of second place Ferrari driver Michel Alboreto. Yeah, he That's crazy. Senna had won his first Grand Prix. After the race, he flirted with a Japanese reporter, kissing her twice on the cheek after she talked about many Japanese women liking him and said he would be back to race in Japan. And then he said he'd be back to race in Japan again soon. <laughs> what a pimp. I mean, any other anyone else that would be problematic, but he's uh, he's a very charismatic guy. I think one of the reasons. Okay, so one, it was the eighties. Two, she was talking about how hot he was. Um, yeah, but yeah, like if somebody, if like Lewis Hamilton kissed like a reporter right now, it would not be cool. Oh, that'd be really bad. Yeah, yeah. The next seven races were a disappointing mix of low finishes and retirements. Meanwhile, DeAngelis was enjoying a string of top five results. Senna finally stepped back on the podium three times in a row in, Austri in Austria, the Netherlands, and Italy. Then came Belgium. Two months before the race was scheduled, Circuit de Spa-Francorchamps was completely remodeled with an emphasis on repaving the racing surface. Track officials planned to use rougher asphalt to help the cars grip the track better during wet races, which were typical of the Belgian circuit. Uh, I love saying Circuit de spa Yeah, say how you did it on Twitter. <laughs> uh, circuit de Spa-Franker-Champs. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of people that thought I was being serious, which I thought was <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Big oof. Uh, construction was scheduled to start and finish before the June Grand Prix. Instead of the, you know, that's like two months, uh, instead of the ideal 12 months. But thanks to poorly timed snowstorms, construction was pushed back even further. The remodel came, the remodel came down to the wire and the course opened 10 days before the first practice session, which left no time for the asphalt to properly set. Any worries the officials might have had were overshadowed by good news. The new rough asphalt worked. Um, teams watched their times drop drastically during practice compared to last year. Spa's, Spa Francorchamps' previous quickest lap was demolished by more than 10 seconds. 10 seconds! That's crazy. Yeah. That just shows what grip can do, man. It's crazy. The drivers don't have to lift as much around big sweeping turns, then they can really keep that momentum going. And but, it's known for that big sweeping turn. Yeah. I love Spa. It's, I think, my favorite F1 track on the calendar. Um, in contrast to Monaco, they're both very historic tracks, but Spa is like a real freaking racetrack. And it's like, instead of being built specific for, like, it's not like developers came and like cleared out an area for a racetrack to be built. Like Spa, they used the natural geography of the yeah. property to it's make very it. It's very flowy. It's amazing. I love it. That's like my, if I could race on any F1 track, it'd be Spa. Um, Anyway, 
But soon, things started going sideways as patches of the track started losing their grip after the asphalt was being pulled away by the grip of the tires. Officials called in workers to patch the track up overnight, but it wasn't enough, and the June race was postponed to September 15th. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. When it came time to race in Belgium, Senna qualified for the number two spot, just one-tenth of a second behind Alain Prost in the McLaren. As expected that day, it had rained, which left a thin film of water all over the track. And on the outlap, or warm-up lap, the drivers did their best to establish a dry line for the coming battle. Uh, so, like, drivers, in a sense, they'd kind of line up to create this path around the track. And these dry lines are great because you can actually drive on them, but they're usually wide enough for just one car. At the start, Prost bungled his launch, which allowed Senna to cruise right by him. By the time they hit the iconic uphill right-hander, Eau Rouge, Senna was already two seconds ahead of the McLaren driver and held on to the lead. Wow. Essentially unchallenged the entire race, Ayrton won with ease. As he took the podium, Senna spotted a group of Brazilian fans who had made the journey to Spa, and they held a banner that read, quote, Senna, you've got the heart and the feet of a champion. It's awesome. Yeah. Senna earned fourth place in the Drivers' Championship, an immensely impressive result for a sophomore driver, but he wanted more. Ayrton believed he couldn't be champion in a Lotus if Lotus kept preparing his and D'Angelo's and D'Angelis' cars equally. He demanded not only uncontested number one status, but also a teammate who wouldn't have the ability nor the equipment to challenge him. So Elio got a ride at Brabham BMW and Senna's new teammate arrived at Lotus. John Colum Crichton Stewart, seventh marquee Just rolls off of the tongue. Butte, AKA the Earl of Dumfries, AKA Johnny Dumfries. <laughs> <laughs> I love Johnny Dumfries. <laughs> it sounds like a fake, like, the evil, dumb version of me. Oh, Johnny yeah. Dumfries. <laughs> <laughs> second race of 1985 took place in Spain. Ayrton qualified on pole, a full second faster than the competition. From the start, Senna led for the first 39 laps, but Williams driver Nigel Mansell finally jumped ahead on lap 40. Sitting in first place for 23 laps until his tires started wearing out and he had to take a pit stop. Senna regained a lead, putting a 20-second gap between himself and Mansell, but Ayrton knew Mansell would be fast. His new tires would give him way more grip through the corners compared to Senna's quickly fading rubber. Mansell got, a, got closer with every rap, mirroring Ayrton's own hunt for Elaine Prost at Monaco two years earlier. As the cars screamed toward the finish line on the final lap, the Williams of Mansell creeped alongside the black and gold Lotus. It was a photo finish for the ages decided by a margin of 0.0014 or 14 thousandths of a second with Ayrton ahead wow. by just inches. It was the slimmest finish of Senna's career and one of the most dramatic in Formula One history. Senna was quoted saying, it was my third win in Formula One and maybe the first one I've had to really fight for. He's very, how does he, how does he remain so cocky and entitled but still so like lovable i don't know i don't know because he can back it up because he can me. back it up yeah. ask why. me man yeah. ask me <laughs> <laughs> ask me buddy why do you like me i don't yeah, know Yeah, you actually asked that nolan be removed uh from the office because you didn't want to compete with him yeah i don't want nolan to have a good camera um <laughs> <laughs> I want no I make do, man. First position, so I get the best camera. I got a, <laughs> I got a freaking carbon fiber tripod back there. Donut bought you a house. Yeah, they bought me a house. <laughs> I got only the best green screens. Top of the line. Everyone else has to shoot in front of leaves. The greenest screens ever. <laughs> I actually thought, because I have a backyard now, I thought about shooting an episode of the D-list, lying on the grass and just seeing what... Max <laughs> would do. Five weeks later, on June 21st, 1986, Brazil was playing against France in the World Cup uh, soccer, uh, hosted in Jalisco, Mexico. Now, I don't know much about soccer, as we've established, but 
This game is one of the greats. Brazil was coming in with serious momentum, winning all four games leading up to this match. It was the quarterfinal. A win here would be a big step towards Brazil hoisting the World Cup. The game was decided by a brutal penalty kick shootout so tense that it must have resulted in at least one coronary somewhere in the stadium. With every shot, the crowd roared. With the score tied 3-3, Brazil's Julio Cesar lines up and misses. France's Luis Fernandez fires a shot at goalie Carlos Gallo, who fails to save it. France scores, Brazil loses. Brazil only had one hope for redemption that day. Ayrton Senna. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. At the Detroit Grand Prix, Senna was on pole position for the fourth time this season. The small group of Brazilian fans in attendance that day made a special request to Senna. Beat the Frenchman, Alan Prost, and restore Brazil's honor. Senna laughed at the sign held up in the crowd and gave the thumbs up. Ayrton led for two laps until he made the rare mistake of missing a gear, costing him precious acceleration as he watched the Williams of Nigel Mansell pass him down the back straight. Ayrton regained first on the eighth lap, which he held on to until his tire blew. The necessary pit stop pushed Senna back to eighth place, 20 seconds behind leader René Arnois in a blue <laughs> Renault. On a mission to defeat anything French, Senna came out of the pit ready to win. On lap 15, he sniped the Ferrari of Michel Alboreto. Next came the Ferrari of Stefan Johansson. Two laps later, both Ligier cars, Nigel Mansell and Alan Prost, went into the pit. Senna took them all. His next target was the Williams of fellow Brazilian Nelson Piquet. Senna was just seconds behind. Ayrton eventually made it past and only grew his lead on the field. When the race was over, Senna was 31 seconds ahead of third-place finisher Alan Prost. Ayrton had saved Brazil's honor that day and became a national hero in an instant. During the cool-down lap, Senna spotted a presumably Brazilian fan waving a Brazilian flag next to the track. He stopped his car. Waving the fan off the track, the shirtless man handed the flag to a corner worker who then gave the flag to Senna. He finished the cool-down lap, flying the Brazilian flag with pride. That's so cool. This ritual would become something of a tradition for Ayrton, but this was the first time he'd ever do it. Senna would only win in Detroit and Spain that year, but came in fourth in points with 55 scored. But because Senna's teammate was deliberately chosen not to be a challenge, Johnny Dumfries ended the season with three, earning Lotus 58 points altogether and fourth place in the Manufacturers Championship, exactly where they were last year. Hey, my name's Johnny Dumfries. <laughs> I'm, I'm Johnny Dumfries. I was hired to lose. <laughs> I would my love to like. My bones are made of gelatin. <laughs> I like. I want to see like a an in depth documentary series on like these kind of like drivers that get on high profile teams but suck pretty bad, <laughs> mm -hmm. like Johnny Dumfries. I just think that'd be really interesting to see hear what he thinks about all this. Yeah, I like on a level. If you could make your peace with it, it would be pretty sick to be Johnny Dumfries. Yeah, just like okay, I'm Ayrton Senna's teammate. Yeah, he's the guy. I'm here. I'm just like I drive the car. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I stand next to him at press conferences and stuff, and then you know, no one really expects me to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, really. I'm hung over, man. I'm the. I get him coke from Earl time to time. I get him a glass of coke. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> he loves coke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like he's an Earl. Like what does he need to be racing for? Anyway, Lotus had some new hotness for 1987 in the form of a new to them Honda power unit. With a new engine came a new coat of paint. Gone was the iconic gold and black John Player special, and in its place was a bright yellow gold Camel cigarettes livery. Nicotine sponsorships are outlawed now, but were pretty common back in the day. The first cigarette maker to sponsor an F1 team was Lotus's old sponsor, John Player Special, in 1972. McLaren quickly followed suit with a smoker sponsor in Marlboro in 1974. If you want to hear more about how that went down, check out part three of our McLaren series. It's really good. Fast forward to early 2000, more stringent tobacco advertising laws have made it harder to sell cigarettes at sporting events, which forced all but Marlboro owner Philip Morris from racetracks. To get around the rules, Marlboro didn't explicitly advertise on Ferrari's race cars, but 
employed a barcode that, re that resembled the Marlboro logo when photographed at high speed. All tobacco sponsorships were completely banned in 2007. However, Philip Morris is still a sponsor of Scuderia Ferrari today, but the team has removed all forms of identification on the car, including the infamous barcode. Check out Wheelhouse for more info on Mission Winnow. But all that was far away in 1987 when it was still cool to sell highly addictive and life-shortening products to fans, including impressionable kids. The 80s rocked. However, it does suck that it's cigarettes, but that Marlboro paint job and the Coolest camel color. one are pretty freaking sick, yeah. I will say. It was now Ayrton's fourth time at Monaco, and each time he didn't win only made the pain of defeat that much worse. He wouldn't let that happen this time. He couldn't. In the 37 years F1 had been racing at Monaco, no Brazilian driver had ever won. Senna would do his best to change that, but it wouldn't be easy. Before getting to Monte Carlo, he had retired from two out of three races and finished second at Imola. Lotus also had a new active suspension system that could help with the bumpy track, but it had never been tested on the street course, so the team wasn't super confident about its ability. So it would, like, it would electronically like adjust itself, which is pretty sick. On top of trouble with the car, the race would have even more traffic this time around. 26 cars would be allowed to race instead of the normal 20, which was done to appease sponsors, even though it was kind of dangerous. Senna qualified second while Mansell got pole. Nigel was able to hold on to the lead for 29 laps until his Williams started acting up, allowing Ayrton to pass with ease. A few laps later, Mansell's turbo had a critical failure, taking him out of the race. Senna comfortably held on to the lead the rest of the race, finishing 33 seconds ahead of the second place driver. Again, just another I mean, dominant I that doesn't finish. even mean anything anymore. He's just like in a different league. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy. Um, Senna's fifth career win was the first ever victory for a Brazilian at Monaco. This feat forever immortalized Senna with the top Brazilian sports figures in history and he was rewarded with a dinner invitation from the Prince of Monaco. So that's pretty cool. Get a nice little dinner. Ayrton won again at Detroit that year, repeating the flag ritual from the year prior. What's particularly crazy about this race is that the Lotus's electronically adjustable suspension allowed Senna to take care of his tires so well that he went the whole race without taking a pit stop. Whoa. That's insane. Ayrton's last race at Lotus was the Australian Grand Prix, an all-around disappointing end to the Lotus era. Senna qualified fourth, finished in 10th, and was then disqualified for having irregularly sized oh, brake pads. Hey, come so, on, hey, man. Come on, man. This, Cut me some slack, man. The suspension thing seems like it was probably outlawed a couple of years later or something. Yeah, right? yeah. That was like a few teams were um, experimenting with it, and uh, it just made the cars really easy to drive, too. They, It's been out. Since it's since been outlawed. In just four seasons, Senna had gone from underappreciated prodigy, taking the fight to the sport's best drivers in the sport's worst car, to regularly winning races in a capable midfield contender. Senna closed out the 87 season in third place, behind both Williams drivers. He was only four points behind runner-up Nigel Mansell. With Lotus, Senna had picked up six wins and 16 pole positions. Wherever that Senna kid went, he was guaranteed to make an impact. Someone was watching Senna this whole time. From the very second, it seemed Ayrton would beat Alan Prost at Monaco four years before. Every time Senna passed one of the red and white Marlboro cars, his fascination with the Brazilian became stronger. How could this driver, this sophomore, take on some of the most advanced and meticulously engineered race cars in the history of motorsport? What would happen if this watcher put Senna in the McLaren? The watcher's name was Ron Dennis, and the world was about to find out. And that's where we'll pick up oh, yeah. next week on Pass Gas. Boom! Dude, this Senna kid turns out pretty good at racing! <laughs> yeah man i mean a lot of races in this episode but i think each you know we chose races that kind of meant something uh unique uh each time he won um yeah crazy crazy cool story i didn't really know that much about his early career so i i, I had a good time you know it's like 
uh, he started out so strong and just like so dominant. And I think, you know, this um, adversity uh, really probably helped him become the great champion that he eventually became. Oh, for sure. You can't, you can't do something great without severe depression beforehand. No. Right. Um, I mean, we've talked about it. The three <laughs> of us have talked about it. You know, like Joe, I mean, I think on a certain level, there's this certain like, I can't go back to what my life used to be like. And that's why we work so hard to make videos and podcasts yeah. and stuff. Like we were losers and now we're winners. And <laughs> Well, I mean, you had more success in... I don't know if you want to mention the other world. I mean, people on Reddit have found out <laughs> through their own means, but like I I feel like I was shut down at every every turn. I was like, where where do I fit in? Uh and I feel like that really made me more hungry than ever mm-hmm. and it's made me super competitive in that world as well and I just like love it more than ever and I like wake up and like start writing because I'm like excited about my job and about cars and and donut is your McLaren. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. And Ron, you're my Ron Dennis. Yeah, dude. I'm your freaking Ron Dennis, dude. That's true, man. <laughs> there uh, we go. So, uh, <laughs> I'm Johnny Dumfries. <laughs> awesome. If you guys don't already know, um, we have a YouTube channel called donut media. You can go ahead and search for that there. Um, if you want to watch us do this podcast, we have a secondary channel called donut podcast. Uh, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out. Um, if you want to know more about Donut stuff, just follow us across all social media at Donut Media. Follow Nolan on Twitter and Instagram at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Joe, both those places at Joe G. Weber. And follow me in both those places at James Pumphrey. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much for listening. I love yeah, you. Yeah, seriously. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everybody. And fire it up. Fire it up. Yeah, be kind. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>